0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Today we're talking about drug use disorders and harm reduction as a part of the Debunked Project. One of our guests, Katie Zaman, is working on a project to reduce stigma toward people with substance use disorders and harm reduction. Stigma is a major barrier to recovery because people don't want to be labeled as junkies and experience social exclusion when they ask for help. People with substance use disorders face stigma from their friends, family, and even healthcare providers. Uh, Kitty Zaman's project started with oral histories, and now comics have been created based on these true stories. One of the comics uh, is or will be based on Jesse Hakala's story of substance use disorder and recovery, and Jesse Hakala also will join us. Uh, I should mention here, Debunked was created by the Utah State Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement and Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative, which are housed within the USU Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services Department of Kinesiology and Health Science and USU Extension. The program is made possible by SAMHSA, Utah Public Radio, and Community Partners. So we welcome in uh, first Katie Zaman. Welcome to the program.
1: Thanks so much, Tom. I'm happy to
2: be here.
0: Good good to have you with us. And Jesse Hakala, uh, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you so much. Grateful to be here today.
0: Did I get your name right?
2: you did. Talk oh, that's
0: right. Oh, okay. Very good. I <laughs> I was reading a transcript of your interview as part of Katie's project. Um, and uh, <laughs> I was amused. I've I've been through this as well before. Uh, the the first little bit is is the interviewer getting the uh, getting the name right. So
1: Exactly.
0: Going back in <laughs> good. Forth. So so I benefited from that uh, if no one else. Um, well, let me start with uh, Katie Zaman. Uh, first of all, uh, give me a little bit of your, uh, your background.
1: Well, I, um, I have a Ph.D. in sociology, and for my dissertation, I used comics to kind of present the data that I was reviewing in my dissertation. And um, my friend, Sandy Seltzer, was the director of the Office of Health, Equity, and Community Engagement, and she saw those comics and she said, this is something we want to bring to this project in Utah. Um, so I have been delighted to be able to come and work with these amazing people who have shared their stories of substance use disorder and recovery to try to reduce stigma. Um, I think it's a really important and exciting project.
0: So how did you come to this, this area, of course, in sociology, a lot of areas you could be working in. What, what, why did you come to uh, harm reduction and recovery?
1: Well, I'm really excited about harm reduction. I think that um, when we're talking about substance use disorder, the mainstream line has been, well, we have to be really tough with people who are using drugs because we frame it as an individual moral failure. But the truth is that it's a really, it's a health struggle and people need support and they need compassion and they need people to understand where they're coming from. And harm reduction is a way to to do that. Um, it is also highly stigmatized because, um, you know, people think we need to take this hard line towards drugs, but, um, that's what part of this work is, is meant to address is to reduce that stigma, to help people feel compassion and help people learn how to support their loved ones who are going through this.
0: So, uh, this is, this is- gotten down to comics and you're developing those but uh, started out I think in oral histories how, how did that uh, begin
1: Yeah so um, Randy Williams is a folklorist. Uh, she retired but she was at USU and she was working with Sandy Seltzer and they were talking about um, you know we, we need to collect these stories so that people can um, try to understand where people are coming from when they're having a substance use disorder. And so they collected all these amazing stories. And they're housed in the library website. And Sandy said, rather than have these, you know, kind of stuck in academia and circulating just among academics, we want to get these out to the general public. So comics are a great way to do that because they, they have this visual element. They require people to kind of use their imaginations when they're reading the stories. And that helps people to make a connection and see themselves in that story and understand that, you know, this could happen to anybody and people who struggle with substance use disorders are human beings and they deserve respect and they deserve our, our support and our love.
0: So that's, that's the work you're trying to see, see you know, folks as human beings, not just mm-hmm. you know, whatever label you put on them. Do you, do you think you're making progress? Do you think things are changing?
1: I hope so. Um, you know, it's it's hard to kind of, you know, nobody wants to talk about this. It's. Um, Something that every single one of us knows somebody that has been through this, but we don't really have the language and we don't really have the tools to talk about how we can actually support people rather than saying, oh, that person's a lost cause or they'll never get better. All we can do is, you know, wait for them to hit rock bottom, which I think is really damaging. Um, But hopefully these stories will show that, you know, people who use drugs are actually just like you and me. Um, and something happened in their life that it took a turn, and they're having this struggle, but there are things that we can do to help and support them, and even healthcare professionals need to have a little bit of education on this. You know, there are effective medications that can help people move towards recovery, and a lot of healthcare professionals don't even know about them. So hopefully, yeah, I, you know, I'm going to keep on trucking with this project until we make, so, make a difference.
0: And by the way, uh, we'll have a link on our website uh, with this episode of the program. Um, the, these stories and their oral history project uh, are at the USU Digital Collections. We'll have that link up there as well as a link to, uh, to Debunked. Uh, well, let me turn to uh, Jesse Heckelow. i really love to, uh, to to hear your story. I've been, re- been reading it. I went to the transcript of your of your oral history uh, project, part of Katie's uh, project. Um, so uh, first of all, tell me, Jesse Heckelow, a little bit about your, your background. Where did you grow up?
2: Sure. I grew up here in Salt Lake City. Um, actually, well, I started growing up in uh, Sandy, and I was... Um, within a wonderful LDS family. My family was amazing. And when I was 10, uh, my parents divorced and I moved to Sugar House. And I've been there pretty much ever since. So.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and of course, um, you know, problems in the marriage and the divorce is going to be hard on any kid, right? How did you respond?
2: Sure. Uh, you know, I was, I was pretty angry about it overall um, with my mother and father. It's, it's, it's hard being separated from your parents. Um, but I pretty much ignored it um, th- throughout growing up. And the problems really didn't arise until I was later with uh, substance use. Uh,
0: so you, um, you turned to alcohol at some point, right?
2: I did, yes. I did. Uh, That was, I mean, I started dabbling a little bit in high school, um, mainly, you know, weed and alcohol. um, But however, after high school, I stopped using all substances until I was married um, when I started drinking a little bit. Um, But the problem didn't arise until I hurt my back uh, when um, I was getting ready for a Christmas party in December of 2010
0: and this is how it starts for a lot of folks uh addicted to opioids right Uh, you you hurt your back Uh, tell me about that pain it uh, it sounds just excruciating
2: sure yeah it was it was hard um yeah so in december of 2010 i was getting ready for a christmas party my husband and i just moved into our first home and we were really proud of it so my dad asked me to host a Christmas party, and I remembered at the last minute I forgot to clean the couches downstairs, so I filled up a a bucket of soap and water and ran down the stairs, and I missed a step and fell down the flight of stairs, uh, which at the time, I just got up and moved on with the day, right? But three days later, um, I I had this intense pain going down uh, the entire left side and into my leg, and what had happened is I herniated my um, S1 through S3 vertebra into my sciatic uh, my sciatic nerve, which is the largest nerve in your body. If no one knows, and if you have experienced sciatic pain, you can sympathize with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very painful. Um, but yeah, the the pain was debilitating. I couldn't stand for longer than ten minutes at a time, and when you're working full time going to school full-time and being a mother full-time, that's not an option. So I, I resorted. I went to my doctor to go get some help, and I was prescribed um, Oxy at that time.
0: Yeah. And that, that um, it sounds like it worked, at least for a
2: while, right? It did. It worked for a while. It, it actually worked really great. And I used um, prescription opiates for a couple of years um, as, as prescribed until I didn't one day. Mm-hmm. And that day I'll never forget. Um, that's the day I can actually look back on and know, okay, that's that's the day that I truly became addicted to these, these pills. I, I started using them as a means to get through the day and be the mom I wanted to be, be the wife I wanted to be, and be the worker I wanted to be. Um, and then it, it quickly turned into okay, I have to have these, because without them, I am nothing.
0: Yeah, tell me about that. Of course, this is it starts out controlling the pain, I guess continues controlling the pain, although you have to have <laughs> higher dosages, right, to control the pain. But then tell me about that shift. It shifts from controlling the pain to, uh, what, filling emotional needs or or, or what?
2: Yes. Yes, I. So one morning I was getting ready. I was in a rush. I was running late for work, and I still had to drop off my my um, my first son at that time. And for whatever reason, and maybe subconsciously, uh, instead of taking the prescribed amount of my opiate prescription, I took twice the amount. And I remember the way the sunrise looked when that euphoric feeling hit. And for the first time in my life I remember feeling relief in every single way. Stress was gone. Um any kind of feeling of inadequacies were gone. I felt I felt good. For the first time in my life I felt like I could breathe freely. Um and that's that's when I found out. Oh, hey if you if you take just a little more you can feel this good and life can be be happy um and that's that's the moment everything shifted away from just taking those prescribed
0: you you say you went to uh, rehab but but you also say you manipulated the situation at rehab <laughs> tell me about that
2: i did yeah so years after that that um initial i guess yeah hi um there was a situation in which um, I embarrassed my family greatly and ruined my son's birthday party. So, the the next morning, I had what's called an emotional hangover, and I was I was desperate and I felt alone. I didn't know what to do. So I entered my first treatment center. Now, when I entered this treatment center, looking back, I entered it not for myself. I entered it for my two children and my husband. And my family, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be the good mother and the good wife, and I felt the only way I could would help could help is go, go to rehab. So, yeah, I did go to rehab. But within the first week of being there, I I heard about um, a prescription called Suboxone, which I want to be clear, Suboxone is a wonderful medicated assisted treatment um, that helps many people um, overcome their their opiate addiction. But at that time, my head was not in the right space. So because I heard there was an opiate in it, I did tell them I was in pain, which at that time, I, I wasn't in too much pain. Still a little, but not not, not a lot. Um, so I, I got on Suboxone and used that as a crutch throughout my treatment. Um, when I did graduate treatment, within a week, I had taken all of the suboxone that they had given me
0: yeah let's just uh, tell me a little bit well let's let's backtrack tell me a little bit more about that morning after the your son's fifth birthday uh, party that's that's you that's got to be you described pain you know emotional pain seeing people's reaction to you and i I think you didn't remember some
2: of what had happened the night before right i didn't um (laughs) leading up to leading up to this event Um, I I had my second son in between this time, uh, and after I had my second son, I had and went through the worst postpartum depression to the point where I I would look at my youngest son and think somehow he wasn't mine. And the shame that that brought of not feeling connected to my own child just pummeled me, into a further addiction, um, where I was just abusing more and more, um, with, with addiction. I mean, things just get out of control pretty quickly. Um, and they always, es- it always escalates. Nothing is ever, it's, it's never enough. Nothing's enough. So <laughs> keep speaking more. Um, so on, on the, uh, day of my son's fifth birthday party, I was pretty nervous. We, we had a bunch of, um, of my husband's uh, coworkers coming over and I wanted to make everything perfect because I wanted to be the perfect mom. Um so I I took pills and drank on it and blacked out. I don't remember what had happened. Uh but apparently I, I I kicked my mother-in-law out. I tried to to fight her. Um I lost all control and when I woke up in the morning and was told how I acted and told how I had ruined my son's fifth birthday party, I came to this moment where I I didn't have any control anymore. I didn't know what to do. I was so ashamed. I didn't want to, I didn't even want to live at that point um, because of the, just the emotional damage and, and physical pain throughout the years and emotional pain. I couldn't. I couldn't get on top of why things were so horrible. And I just, I wanted it to end. So that's when I went to my first treatment center.
0: Mm-hmm. By the way, during that pregnancy, your second pregnancy, uh, you, with one little bobble, you were you were clean. You were concerned about your son, right? And uh, wanted to do your best for him.
2: Yes. Yes. I, well, I, I was, I did stop using opiates, um, but with addiction there comes a piece of insanity. Um, I wanted my son to be healthy. So I did stop using opiates, but there was a time in my pregnancy where I did take an entire prescription within a couple of days. Um, again, that was more for me to escape my emotional pain at that point. Um, I only did that once through my pregnancy, but there's so many women out there that, that also experience the same thing. Um, and, uh, it just goes again to show the insanity of, of the addiction. I love my sons with my whole heart. Um, but it, when you are dependent on a substance, you will do anything to get it. It's, it's like breathing air sometimes.
0: Well, another illustration of that is uh, very impactful. You you realized, well, this pregnancy is going to have to come by, uh, the, the birth is going to have to come by C-section, right, because of your first pregnancy. And, yes. uh, and that's C-section is going to come with a uh, prescription of uh, painkillers.
2: Yes. And to be quite honest throughout that pregnancy, it was a, it was a pretty hard pregnancy, but I knew in the back of my head, as soon as I have my son, I'll be able to get my pills again. I'll be able to uh, maintain and I'll, I'll be able to be okay again because mm. I, I didn't feel okay within myself emotionally without them at that point.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to turn back to Katie Zaman, and then we'll take a break, and we'll come back and resume uh, Jesse Huckle's uh, story. Um, Katie Zaman, you've, you know, you've collected a lot of oral histories uh, doing uh, comics. Um, I imagine there are elements of Jesse's story that are that are pretty common among among the folks you've talked to.
1: Absolutely, yes. Um, and what Jesse was just describing with her pregnancy. This is something that's really, really common. Um, a lot of people st- quit cold turkey and that's really hard to do when they find out that they're pregnant um, and they do it for the health of their, their children. But then what happens is once the baby is born, um, there's a really high rate of overdose because uh, they've gone off the opioids. They have Their tolerance has decreased and then they pick it up again, um, and it's just really, really easy to overdose at that time, which is tragic, right? This is a new parent with a child um, who then doesn't have their parent. Um, so this is extremely common, and it's, you know, Jesse is so similar to me in so many ways. Like, this could have been me if I had fallen down the steps and hurt my back like this could have been me it could have been so many people that I know and that's the point that I I hope that these comics get across that you know this could be any one of us or any any one of our family members that we love
0: yeah that's yeah that's a very good point Um, Jesse also described uh, escalation right Uh, that it's never enough Uh, I imagine that's another common theme
1: oh absolutely yeah and there's a certain point where people are are using these substances just to feel feel normal. It's not so much about getting high or partying. It's it's like I just need to function for my daily life, to take care of my children, to do my job. I just need these drugs to function, mm-hmm. and it's it's not like a you know I'm gonna go out and be wild. It's just to be normal.
0: Yeah, well, let me turn back to Jesse. You, you you said at one point in this interview that I was referencing. Uh, you, you, you know, you're, you're doing this just to feel, I think you're doing this just to feel normal, but at a certain point, your husband notices, or or you notice that your husband noticing that you're just
2: not the same Jesse anymore. Yes. He, he actually did not know I was abusing opiates until I told him at my first treatment center. Um, I I hid I hid the fact that I was abusing opiates because I was, so ashamed. I mean, I was raised in Utah with an amazing LDS family whom I love with my whole heart, and I, I wanted to be the good wife. I wanted to be the amazing mother. I, you know, I wanted to be the perfect wife and mother. That was, every, growing up, that's all I wanted. Um, so, and having to admit that I was abusing a substance in order to help me get by when other people seem to have no problem in life. It was really hard, um, and I, I kept it secret for years. I, mean, I kept it secret from my family. Um, no one, no one knew. Now he knew I was drinking because what what would happen is I would I would eat my prescription within days of getting it, and to tide me over until I could get my next prescription, I would drink. So he thought it was the drinking that was the problem, when really uh, the underlying thrill. Like I want to call it the demon in the house was was the abuse to the opiate prescription.
0: So that's interesting. you uh, he knew about the drinking, but you were you were hiding the you know the opioid addiction. Uh, you know, neither I, I assume that he would view neither as great, right but but you felt that he would uh, I guess see the opioid as a more serious thing.
2: Oh yes. Yes. And because of the amount that I was abusing at that time, uh, I was, I was scared. Well, I was scared that I'd be turned out of my family, you know, which mm-hmm. ended up happening anyway. However, <laughs> um, I, I was scared that I, I would be shamed and, um, treated as less and not loved. Um, and, and I wouldn't be able to be with my children, that I wouldn't be able to be trusted with my children, and I would be looked at just as something less, because that's how I was viewing myself at the time. So mm-hmm. I kept it secret, hidden, locked away as, as for long as I possibly could.
0: So Katie Zaman, this is uh, you know, this fear of being kicked out of the family, uh, I guess that'd be an extreme form of stigma. Right, but mm-hmm. uh, a broad range of these, but but still, uh, yeah, that's what you're working on, right? Stigma is a barrier.
1: Absolutely, it. This is the crux of what we're trying to address with these stories. Um, when you once you get labeled a junkie or an addict, there's a whole bunch of social baggage that comes along with those labels, and a whole set of um, perceived actions that people think they're supposed to take, like letting people hit rock bottom and not enabling them and tough love. And that's scary. That's social exclusion. And you lose those connections that you need so much in order to move towards recovery. And this is not only friends and family. It's also healthcare providers. Um, Health care providers can be, you know, they can actually treat people differently when they realize that they have An issue with substances and so part of what we're doing is trying to also educate healthcare providers on these evidence-based science-based methods for helping people deal with their substance use disorders
0: well we're overdue for a break let's do that now we'll we'll take a break Uh, we're talking about drug use disorders and harm reduction as part of the debunked project and uh, Katie Zaman is with us. She's working on a project to reduce stigma toward people with substance use disorders and harm reduction that uh, takes form of oral histories and uh, now comics. Um, and we also have with us uh, Jessie Hakala, uh, who is telling us her story of uh, substance use disorder and recovery. We'll get into the, the recovery uh, when we come back. Um, we'll take a break, and we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, Today we're talking about drug uh, use disorders and uh, harm reduction as part of the the Debunked Project. Uh, Katie Zaman is working on a project to reduce stigma toward people with substance use disorders and harm reduction. And Jessie Hackel is telling us her story of substance use disorder and recovery. Debunked was created by the Utah State University Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement and Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative, which are housed in the uh, USU M. Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services, Department of Kinesiology and Health Science, and USU Extension, programs made possible by uh, SAMHSA and uh, Utah Public Radio and Community Partners. Um, So let me turn uh, back to... Uh, Jesse Hakala you uh, at some point you're you've gone through uh, rehab uh, mm-hmm. but but at, but at some point you reach out to uh, someone you met at rehab right to, to say hey can you get me can you get me some uh, opioids
2: yes yes that's right I <clears throat> when I graduated from my first treatment program uh, when I returned to work within a week of returning to work I was fired from my position um, because of the substance use and because of the absence of of, um, the time I was away. Uh, So when I was fired, I fell into a depression, and I knew that one of the the people I went to rehab with had relapsed. So I reached out to him and asked him if he could just help me get some Percocet this one time. He said yes. Uh, so, you know, off, off we went, we went down to the, the block, the Rio Grande. I'm sure people remember what that looks like at the time. <clears throat> and, uh, he was gone for a couple of minutes, came back and said, okay, I have, I have good news and I have bad news. I'm like, Oh, well, what is the bad news? He said, well, I couldn't find Percocet. And I said, that's, yeah, that's horrible news. What, what's the good news then? And he said, well, I found heroin and I was horrified. I mean, I had stigma in my head about what heroin was and what it did to people. Um, even, you know, me taking prescriptions, it was prescribed by a doctor, right? It was safe. <laughs> it was safer than heroin. Um, and I I was pretty upset with them. And he said, you know, Jess, an opiate is an opiate, right? And I said, yeah. He's like, you know, I can just do it this one time. And so I, I tried heroin for my first time and found that it was more... I guess it's effective. Uh, it was it was cheaper, and it was very very easy to access. And so my addiction escalated from prescription opiate use into heroin use.
0: Did you uh, did you get the same? Uh, were you meeting the same quote unquote needs with heroin as you were with the with the opioids?
2: Oh, absolutely, and, and more. Uh, and more. It's, yeah. it's stronger. It lasts longer. It's it's cheaper. It's it's um, very easy to access. Uh, I wouldn't have to wait in between times of prescriptions to get to get what was satisfying my addiction, right? I could just go down uh, downtown and get it anytime that I wanted or needed. Yeah. Um, so it, it just opened up a whole new side of my addiction, and things quickly escalated beyond out of control. I, I never imagined that life could get that bad, and the actions that came with the addiction, um, it turned me into something that I I would never, I I could never be being sober. Um, Mm -hmm. It just, it turns you into someone and something that you have to uh, maintain. um, Because once you level to level, I don't want to say level up, but once you get to that point, of no return, I mean, you you can't even go a day without that drug because you'll be sick in bed Hmm. and in a lot of pain. And so I I went, after I was introduced to heroin, I would go to any lengths to get it. I mean, I'm talking about draining life savings and taking out loans and we just, things just got really out of control once I was met with heroin.
0: You, at a certain point, you were living with your mother, right? So that that didn't last.
2: Yes. Very long, yes. right? My mm-hmm. my, hus- my ex husband he he um, couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> the the chaos and the craziness, um, and so he asked me to go live with my mom, which I did. Um, but when your resources are taken away in order to get that drug, you get pretty creative and, and start thinking of ways to access that drug again. Um, so I did what I never, ever would imagine doing to my mom. Um, I found her checkbook and started writing checks to myself in the amount of $25 each uh, in order to get well. Because at that time, my addiction was so high, I wasn't, I wasn't doing the drug to feel relief from, from my emotional pain in life. I was doing it just to stay well, so I wasn't sick all of the time. So I was just maintaining wellness at that point. Um, and uh, what ended up happening is I was arrested with 17 felonies uh, due to the, the writing of the checks. Um, and from there, I, you know, my mom had to do what she had to do. She didn't know what else to do. So she, she kicked me out of the house, and for the first time, I found myself homeless. That was the first time. Um, The
0: the first time. So, yeah. uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, At that point, I thought I'd hit, you know, as people call it, the rock bottom. Um, But your rock bottom, there's no such thing as rock bottom. There really isn't an addiction. You can keep digging as far as you want. Um, I I felt at that time that I was completely ready to stop, but I didn't know how. Um, So I reached out to my friend who lived out in Utah County and thought, well, maybe if I move away from Salt Lake city, I can get clean. Um, and when I moved out there, I started a, an outpatient drug program, which was amazing. Pamari. Thank you. And, um, and I was started on medicated assisted treatment against Suboxone, but this time it was a little different because I actually wanted it uh, for myself. So Um, I was out there for a bit, but uh, the thing is, when you take away the drug, that's only half of, not even half the equation, it's a very complex situation, but um, when you take away the drug, there's still that emotional piece, that mental, physical, emotional piece that you need to address. And I thought, you know, if I can just not use the drug, then I'll be okay, um, that I wasn't actually working on myself. And I met someone in Utah County that I relapsed, eventually relapsed with, and he showed me a new level of addiction, which was IV, IV use. Hmm. Um, from there, uh, things quickly spun out of control. So this is a six-week time frame that I'll talk about briefly. Uh, from the day that I was introduced, to IV use. It took six weeks for the following to happen. Um, My husband and I got into into an altercation. The cops were called. I was charged with uh, domestic violence. And when I was charged with domestic violence, I had a protective order placed against me, which umbrellaed my children. So I was not allowed legally to speak to or see my children any longer at that time. Um, I lost the housing, the place where I was staying. I lost my car. Uh, I lost all of my belongings and found myself on the streets of Salt Lake City with no support uh, and de- just desperation. Hmm.
0: The, so what what was the key then getting you to, you know, recovery? You say they uh, take away the drugs. That's only, uh, you know, minority part of this. The bigger part is working on your emotional health and, and such. What, what got you right. to that point?
2: Well, I think, you know, honestly, I think every piece of my story got me to this point. You know, it, addiction is... I mean, it's, it's non-linear, non-linear it's, all, it's all over the place, um, and every single step that got me to that point on that street got me thinking. <laughs> um, I experienced horrendous things on the street, and those that have, lived, have been on the street understand, um, but in addition to all the trauma that, um, that I experienced losing my children, losing my mom, my family, like I got to a point where I didn't want to live anymore, but I did because of my kids. And so they call this in recovery a moment of clarity where you are able to assess your situation and truly begin to be honest with yourself. i have been running from myself and problems for so long, um, and I had this moment of clarity and I was so sick of running. I was so sick of being sick. I was running from the law at that point too. Um, and I was so, so tired of not seeing my, my kids because they're everything to me. Um, so I, I came to a decision. I just need to stop. And I, on, at that time I, I was thinking, okay, if I live, I live. And if I die, I die. And my decision was to tuck myself behind a dumpster and the, the cement wall surrounding a dumpster and withdraw. And I knew if I survived it, I would do whatever it took, whatever it took to get my life back. Uh, and if I died, then it was meant to be. You know, <laughs> Just at that point of desperation with no resources, no support, um, and, and just being sick all the time. That, 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 was my, that was my choice. I got to get behind a dumpster and withdraw for three days. And it was, it was really hard. Um, I, I don't know how I lived through it, to be honest. I had no idea. Um, I had uh, hallucinations throughout the withdrawal. And I would see my kids and they'd ask, Mom, come home. Come home to us. And um, on the third day, uh, it was in the morning, the sun was rising, and I heard some people talking, and I tucked myself out from behind the dumpster, and I saw these two police officers standing there drinking coffee. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is it. This is my chance. And so I called out to them, and I told them my name, and I said, my name's is Jesse Akela, and... I'm going to jail today. They looked me up. They're like, oh, yeah, you're definitely going. <laughs> um, and I, I, went, I went to jail. And I was in jail for, for a bit, but it gave me time to dry out and really take a look at the actions of my addiction. Um, and it, it also showed me how much work I had to do mm-hmm. on myself. So I was, I was given this amazing opportunity in, in jail to plead into drug court. And those who aren't familiar, it's, uh, it's a recovery court for those um, experiencing substance use. And in completing drug court, you are given the opportunity to expunge your record. So I decided, I, you know, I don't have any resources or, or support at this time. My mom was coming to see me, but... Um, I I was willing to do whatever it took, and five days before Thanksgiving of 2017, I had Mark Augustine from the LDA office come in and ask me if I wanted to spend Thanksgiving at The Haven, which is a treatment center in Salt Lake City. And I picked picked up that opportunity, and I ran with it, and I did absolutely everything that anyone told me to do in recovery. I mean, I took all suggestions. I uh, attended every single group. I, I I wanted to get down to the root cause of why I had the substance use issue, and I wanted to know how to overcome it so that one day I could I could see my kids again and feel happiness on on an organic like authentic level and not because of a substance. Um, so,
0: yeah. Well, let's, uh, that's us it started. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. I'm so glad you're you're in recovery now. So glad you made it. Uh, or you know, on the on the journey, right? It's one day at a time, right? But uh, so, Katie Zaman, what what would you like to underline in in Jesse's incredible story?
1: Well, first of all, thank you again to Jesse for sharing your story. Um, it's so brave because. This is the work that we need to do in society to change how, you know, how we think about these issues. So thank you. Um, and I just want to point out that, you know, when Jesse decided, okay, I need, to, I need to stop using this and I'm going to go through withdrawals behind a dumpster, what if there was a place where she could have gone to do that safely, where, you know, she could be supervised by medical professionals, where she wouldn't be out in the elements, where she could have food and water and care um, and support like that. That's the kind of thing we need to be providing for people who are ready um, and, and not until that moment when they're ready. Like, there's so much that we can do to um, to help people along this journey rather than the threat of. You know, going to jail or the threat of losing your children, which is such a devastating thing and happens to so many people who are going through this. Um, so I think her story illustrates that, and it also illustrates this, um, the fact that people are really, really trying. It's not that they're, you know, just they've decided to go down this path. It's, it's like Jesse said, it's nonlinear. It's something that ebbs and flows. It's something that, you know, that her friend couldn't find the Percocet, and he found heroin. And so that was just sort of a coincidence that happened in her life that took her down that path. Um, so there's just so many things that we can learn from Jessie's story and other stories like Jesse's that can help us be better human beings and be more supportive and compassionate.
0: Uh, If you just joined us, uh, we're talking with Katie Zaman, um, who is uh, working on a project to reduce stigma for those with uh, substance use disorders, and uh, Jessie Hakala. We've heard her, uh, at least parts of her uh, story of uh, substance use disorder and recovery. So Katie Zaman, you're developing these these comics, um, and you say that comics can help with stigma reduction through a process called contact intervention. Tell us briefly about that.
1: Yeah, so um, there has been some research done on this that, you know, when we hold stigmatizing beliefs about a group of people, one thing that helps to reduce those stigmatized beliefs is contact intervention, which is exposing ourselves to members of that stigmatized group. So for most of us, um, that's, we don't go, we don't, it cross circles with, with people in this group. And if we do, we might not even know it because of the stigma, right? Like people don't walk up to you and say, hey, my name is Jesse. Uh, I have a substance use disorder. Do you want to talk about it? Um, it's something that we actually, it's kind of taboo. So one way to get that contact intervention is these comics. Um, so by reading these stories and seeing, human faces in the visuals and having to use your imagination to fill in the details. It helps us to connect on a human level with these stories and understand on a human level, what it's like to go through um, a substance use disorder and all of the really difficult things that accompany that experience. So, um, and it also can help us if we are reading these comics, for example, in a, in a book group, so each of the comics will have a list of discussion questions at the end that will help people to think about those stigmatizing beliefs and those prejudices that, they, that they're holding and really think, oh, is that the right way to be thinking about this or is there another way to think about this? And is withholding my love and support the, the best thing I can do to help my loved one or is there another alternative? Um, so those are two ways that these comics, I hope, will help to reduce stigma just one by one.
0: Um, Jesse, I, we don't have about a minute left here, but um, I'm, all through this discussion, I've been thinking about uh, how we see uh, people with uh, substance use disorders, right, or, or people with mental illness or whatever it might be, um, it, it, sometimes we, we we see you through through that label right through that prism when I'm sure you're you know obviously seeing yourself as you right So there's Jesse but but also all these problems you're experiencing uh, so so how do you resolve that within yourself?
2: That's a great question. <laughs> it takes a lot of work, a lot of work, a lot of time therapy I mean <clears throat> my my intervention, was very complex because my, my problem was very complex. Um, but it's a daily practice. It really is a daily practice of how to begin to love and forgive yourself because there's so much um, pain from the past that occurs with active addiction and so having a community of support is absolutely essential. Having that connection with other people that have gone through uh, similar experiences, along with you know, professional help, um, getting a therapist, going to groups, uh, going, you know, whatever that looks like for you, your 12-step meetings. Um, but really, that, that connection piece helps keep me... Uh, and help remind me that I'm not a bad person. I'm not defined by my past. I'm defined by my actions that I do every single day, uh, and, and here forward. Um, and I'm just I'm so grateful that I that I did I was given the opportunity of intervention. As many people out there are not given the opportunity, and they don't have the resources uh, necessary in order uh, to be to be successful. So. Um, yeah, it, re- recovery is it's complex, um, but having the support, especially with your family and loved ones, uh, as well as the community surrounding you at all times, is vital.
0: Uh, just 30 seconds, but I'd love to get your very br- brief thoughts on this, Katie Zaman. How, how do we see these folks as, as them, right, and not through the labels?
1: Yeah, right. well, it's just like if somebody has diabetes or cancer, that we don't see them only as that that condition they are a, a whole human and jesse look her up like google Jessie. she has done some incredible work in utah to serve the community of people who have substance use disorders and she's using her experiences and her life to make things better for people and that's who she is she's an amazing mother an amazing friend an amazing person and um, her substance use disorder is just a small part of her life experiences.
0: Well, thank you both to to, to you for sharing uh, with us on Access Utah, and thanks for all the good that you do. Uh, just at the very end here, I want to mention this. You had emphasized this in the notes, so we won't have time to talk about it. But uh, Jesse's best friend uh, passed away recently, Evan Fields. Uh, he and Mindy mm-hmm. Vincent brought harm reduction uh, to Utah he was instrumental in reforming family recovery court. And Jesse's comic, uh, you're doing a comic on Jesse's story, will be dedicated to Evan. Just wanted to mention that at the end. Well, this program has been part of the Debunked Project. We've been talking with Katie Zaman. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much.
0: And uh, And Jesse Hakala, thank you so much. And thanks, everyone, thank for you. listening to the program today. We'll go out with an interview I recorded recently with uh, Craig Jessup, uh, who's music director of the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra. Well, uh, some exciting things coming up uh, this weekend. Uh, you've got um, music of Durofle and Jongen um, and featuring the organ. That's correct. This, this year our uh, c-
3: concert, the spring concert, is part of the Campbell Organ Festival and it's one of three events uh, that we're doing. The first one was an organ recital uh, this past weekend featuring Dr. Richard Elliott, principal organist of the Salt Lake Tabernacle. Our concert featuring uh, Dr. Bradley Welsh, who is the organist in uh, Preston Hollow Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Texas. Mm -hmm. He is the Richard Elliott (laughs) <laughs> of Dallas, Texas. He's an amazing young uh, organist, and he's coming uh, on our concert, and he will be featuring him on the Symphonie Concertante of Josef Yangen, a Belgian composer, and it's in four movements. It's a tour de force, and it's not a cr- concerto in that it's a, it's a piece for two orchestras. One of them is a traditional symphony orchestra, and the other is the king of all instruments, the organ. Mm. And it is the most amazing uh, work. I did it with Bradley in Dallas, in Preston Holland Presbyterian Church about four years ago. And I, at that time, thought, I have got to bring him to Logan and perform this. And the second half of that concert will be the incredibly beautiful Requiem by the French composer Maurice Durufle, that was written around 1947. And Durufle was uh, primarily an organist in one of the large cathedrals in Paris, uh, Catholic cathedrals, and it's all based on Gregorian plain chant. Every single movement, there are seven movements, they are all based on plain chant. And these melodies are well over 1,000 years old and still being used today. It's hauntingly beautiful. Like the Foray Requiem, also a French composer, it's meant to bring solace and comfort to those who are grieving and mourning the loss of a loved one. And in this age of COVID, where I don't know that any of our lives have not been touched by someone who has gone, I think it will bring enormous comfort. And in addition to that, I have a very personal reason for doing this, in that we're dedicating this performance also to a young man by the name of Robin Putnam, who lost his life while traveling on a train from Marysville, California, to Grand Junction, Colorado, uh, disappeared off of the train. Uh, his parents were to have picked him up in Grand Junction. He never got off the train some five years later, they found the remain his remains mm. in Elko. It just happened that my grandson and I were on the train and met Robin and visited with him. Uh, And when we got off in the train in Salt Lake City uh, at 2.30 in the morning, we never thought anything about it until I saw a week later this uh, news bulletin had anyone seen Robin Putnam on the train. Would you call the police? I did. No one called back. A month later, they played it again. I called in again. And the next day, his father called me. And I've developed this friendship with Doug and Sidney Putnam. And we're dedicating our performance to the memory of Robin Putnam, an art major, uh, 25 years old, who lost his life, and all missing and abused children uh, throughout the world. So I think it's going to be a really, truly moving comforting and, I hope, healing experience for
0: everyone who comes. Well, look, look forward to that. Um, yeah, that's especially poignant, isn't it? So uh, here's some exciting news about that concert. It's happening on Saturday uh, in Logan on the USU campus. Uh, featuring American Festival Chorus and Orchestra. Two pairs of tickets are available to you. Dr. Jessup has uh, has put uh, two free pairs of tickets uh, up uh, for you, and all you have to do is email me to upraxis at at gmail.com.